What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. To this week's episode of Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Shireen Ahmed, freelance writer and sports activist in Toronto, Canada. On this week's panel, we have the absolutely phenomenal and president of the Feminist for Leo Messi fan club, Dr. Brenda Elsie, undeniable genius and associate professor of history at Hofstra University. We have the indomitable and brilliant, plus my best cuddling companion, Lindsay Gibbs, sports recorder at Think Progress in D.C. Before we start, I would like to thank our patrons for their generous support and to remind our new flamethrowers about our Patreon campaign. You pledge a certain amount monthly, as low as $2 and as high as you want, to become an official patron of the podcast. And in exchange for your monthly contribution, you get access to special rewards. With the price of a latte a month, you can get access to extra segments of the podcast, a monthly newsletter, an opportunity to record on the burn pile, only available to those in our Patreon community. So far, we have been able to solidify proper funding for editing, transcripts, and our phenomenal social media guru, Shelby, but are hoping to reach our dream of hiring a producer to help us with the show. Burn It All Down is a labor of love, and we all believe in this podcast. But having a producer to help us as we grow would be amazing, and we are so grateful for your support. We have a bloody brilliant show for you this week, starting off with a discussion on the Women's World Cup 2023 bid. Brenda will talk to Dr. Melissa Forbes, champion powerlifter and professor, And then we'll talk a little bit about the NBA and mental health. Let's get at it. So it's March Madness, and we're all excited. Everyone's getting their brackets ready. I don't get my brackets ready. I just pretend and then jump on the bandwagon that suits me, which is actually always UConn, Huskies, Go Women. There's no bandwagon for me. There's just blind loyalty. I mean, for the men's, I'm like, whatever. Now... Lindsay, tell us about this ridiculous thing of ESPN leaking the bracket, the women's bracket early. Yeah, so it was Monday is the selection show for the women. And all day you're kind of building up to the moment at 7 p.m. I think it was scheduled where the bracket is going to be revealed. And it's just every single year, you know, the teams gather around the TVs together and wait to see if their name is going to pop up on the screen. And when it does, they cheer and hug. And it's just, you know, it's a big moment. It's a big moment, especially for the players who don't make the tournament often. But honestly, it's just a moment that every single college basketball player dreams of. So I was headed to Maryland to be there for their watch party because I do some coverage of them for The Athletic. And up at about three o'clock in the afternoon, 
word starts coming over at Twitter that ESPNU, that channel, was showing the women's bracket. So what happened is they had a bracket reveal show for the men because the men's bracket had come out the day before. So they were doing an entire bracket breakdown. But what was happening is while these people were breaking down the men's bracket, the women's bracket was showing on the side of the screen. Oh, my God. (laughs) It it went on for – I've heard as much as 20 minutes. I feel like it was as many as five at least. But, like, this wasn't a flash on the screen and then immediately – take off. It seems like there's somebody just completely crossed their wires. So it was awful because once that's out there, you have to report it if you're a news reporter. Like that's not like you're going and digging through ESPN's archives. That's on a national television show. <laughs> so, you know, it, it ended up that once the word got out of the bracket was out, ESPN released moved up the selection show from 7 p.m. to 5 p.m. But of course, everyone had already planned their selection show parties for 7 p.m. So you can't move them up that quickly. So it was just, you know, it was chaos. It was, and it was sad. The big scheme of things, it's not that big of a deal, of course. But these are like, you know, just kind of some stereotypical moments that people dream of. And it was taken away. And that's sad. Brenda, let's talk about incompetency (laughs) of ESPN here. (laughs) Well, you know, I have this whole sour feeling this year, which is I went to Michigan State, a huge fan of Michigan State athletics, had no idea about the horrors that were taking place while I was there. And honestly, I'm the worst person this year. I think they should all be home studying for midterms. <laughs> oh, Professor Elsie, I, think I love every, you. I know. I know I'm the worst person, but I just can't help it anymore. I'm grading midterms and looking at these students and thinking, oof, you know, they are not real students. They are not able to have that experience and I know it's like crappy on on my part because it ruins everyone's fun I'm not invited to any parties anymore so (laughs) no nope you're not invited to my parties as much you know I invite you to my parties all the time (laughs) I exactly I know I feel like if I was in your class Brenda I would probably be on academic probation I'm I I feel like that would be the case But that's okay. I mean, we wish, I mean, I know, Lindsay, what you're saying about people planning their parties and people wanting to have a really good time and it's part of the experience. But, and and I feel so gutted for those athletes who actually really deserve it. So, you know, I really hope that they, you know, get it. And, you know, it's, it's like a reveal. It's like a fun thing that was taking away from them. So what can, what do we think ESPN can do to make it up to them? Can they give them all like, I don't know. A case of something? Can they give them all? They're not yeah, allowed they to accept them. Them. Any, any I mean, they could pay them money, but you know, <laughs> yeah, they uh, actually, they yeah. can't. Uh, which we will talk about later in the show. But yeah. no, you know what? There, that's the, and that's the thing is like there's kind of no coming back. People are comparing this to something that happened a few years ago, where a CBS employee, I believe kind of purposely leaked the bracket for the men, but it was very close to the actual show when that happened. And it was kind of one rogue employee. Whereas while this is a mistake, it just seems, I think, you know, the reaction people are having is it just seems like the type of careless mistake that you would never really have for the men's tournament. And I think that's what's 
what's sad and look, it comes from a situation where all these players are already feeling a little bit of disrespect, you know, it's not happening in a vacuum. And so I think that compounds this also. But look, at the end of the day, it's not the biggest deal in the world. But I was sad on Monday. Let's get started with the show. Brenda, can you take us through the Women's World Cup bid process and what's different and what's exciting in this one? (laughs) Well, just as we're getting excited for the 2019 World Cup this summer in France, there are strange things (laughs) afoot around the 2023 Women's World Cup. Um, How could there not be anything that FIFA, when we were just talking on the show about the the mistaken reveal, I was thinking to myself, "Oh my goodness! Like that could so that would happen." Be a FIFA thing. Yeah. <laughs> no. That would be so on brand. So, following the usual timeline, we would have already be waiting for the decision and expecting it before the event happens this summer. But FIFA has now announced that the decision won't be made until next March, March of 2020, which is at least a year behind what has been happening. So it's it's a little bit concerning. There was also originally FIFA announced that the votes would not be declared publicly. Now they're saying that they will be. Basically, who chooses the host country is the 37-person council of FIFA, which is which is elected by the whole Congress. If you're wondering about female representation on that council, at least one woman must be elected per confederation. So as you'd guess, there's exactly (laughs) one woman representative for each confederation. So that's six. That's six. Uh, (laughs) None of whom have a particularly high profile. And so that is going to be interesting to see how they'll, that'll play out in the decision. We have nine, nine host countries or bids that have come forward. This is the most ever for a Women's World Cup. Um, but it's also probably part of a situation where it doesn't have so much to do with the host country's interest in women's um, football, but a kind of um, prompting or hope for further development money if they do get the cup. Because, and we can talk about this, some of these countries have no developed women's football at all, like in the case Wait of Wait a minute. Are you saying there's disingenuity in women's football? <laughs> <laughs> so I'll just list these and then open it up to you guys. So what I've got is Argentina... Australia, that's the bid where they've been, you know, sort of lobbying for a year and a half now. Bolivia, Colombia, Japan, New Zealand, South Africa, and a joint North-South Korea bid. So I'm going to throw it back to you both. Do you, is there one of those countries you feel like particularly excited about? Lindsay? Uh, None of them are in my backyard. (laughs) 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 No, I would say. But, you know, I I don't really have, I would say, a, you know, a favorite here. What I would like is the country who will put the most of the funds that they receive to actually developing women's football. (laughs) And I would like to see some sort of promise and way to hold them accountable for that, as opposed to what I would fear, which is getting these funds, getting all this attention and just using it to 
grow men's football in their countries. Um, but look, I think that there's – it's certainly exciting to see. I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk, and Brenda, I'd be curious for you. We've got – the Argentina is in the mix here. And they, of course, just started, just kind of sanctioned, as we talked last week, their professional women's team or women's um, league. So I'm curious. It seems like that's probably not a coincidence (laughs) that they're trying to prove that they take uh, women's football seriously. Of course, North and South Korea is fascinating. And I I don't, uh, we talked so much South Korea and North Korea politics surrounding the Olympics. And that's just kind of hard for me. I would think it would seem like the favorites would be New Zealand. And then I I don't know, I'm, I'm torn here. I will say I'm sorry, the most productive thing I have to say is at least they promise that nobody can have artificial turf for this World Cup. (laughs) Well, yeah, I think what I'm just going to pipe in here is that I feel a strong sense of accountability that uh, people should deserve the World Cup. You are not doing women's football a favor by hosting. So Brazil, you're on this list, but I'm not feeling you. I'm really not feeling you in terms of deserving this just because your land has birthed some of the most phenomenal footballers of all time. You don't get to have this. I do have a lot. I see the way that the Australian, the AFF is the Football Federation of Australia. I see how they're hustling. I see an Odong. I see that crew down there and they are hustling. These people want this World Cup and the momentum is building. There's so much excitement around the Matildas, like the players and the culture, like the photos coming from Australia, from the recent a Cup of Nations. Like those stadiums are filled. They're little boys with Sam Kerr jersey on. Sam Kerr her jersey jerseys on and i think that's that's also key here because we gotta actually acknowledge that now the other thing is is that um bolivia like i don't know how to say this (laughs) but like i just they don't strike me as being on and and don't get me wrong i really do think that the women's world cup can help help amplify women's football in that area that that is hosting definitely did so for canada i mean there was already strong women's football culture soccer culture here anyway but it just helped but bolivia i don't know like i don't want bolivian women's soccer fans coming after me for this but like i you're just not on my like in my peripheral vision at all i don't know bren you it's your expertise uh, I, I mean, it's it's a disaster. I don't know how they can say that they have a national well, women's league. I mean, they're supposed that's supposed to be a requirement, not necessarily a professional league. So I, I think that's how, you know, it's how some places interpreted that rule was that it had to be a national league, but not necessarily professional, which has always been confusing. But that's why Colombia explicitly started their league two years ago, was to try to put the bid in for this cup. And since then, we've seen, you know, the head of the federation charged with sexual harassment. We've seen the league fall apart. We've seen players that are in under-19 situations accusing uh, the author- the coaches, assistants, co- coaches of sexual assault. I mean, I just, I, they would have to really clean house to even convince me. So I, I would say Argentina, Bolivia, Brazil, Colombia. It makes me so sad because there's never been a Women's World Cup in South America nor in Africa. And so obviously I'd love that Brazil already has all of the infrastructure to do it. And so does Argentina because they've hosted a Men's World Cup. And so does South Africa. And South Africa, personally, okay. would be my favorite. 
I'll say that because I would love to see it in Africa. I, I would just love to see AFCON get it. But then again, I mean, what confederation doesn't have a ton of graft? I mean, <laughs> as soon as I say the word, the African confederation, then I go, oh, God. Yeah. And to my mind, you know, even that high achieving Nigerian women like federation hasn't paid their, didn't pay their players. So if we're going to talk about, do they deserve it? The federations are all completely fucked up, but the players deserve it. The fans deserve it. But then that's where we run into this stupid political process because that's what it is. And then it's like, are you, you want to reward the fans, you want to reward the players, you want to reward the culture, but you don't want to reward the corruption, right? And you can't do one without the other. And that's really difficult. One question, we're not really talking about Japan, which is, of course, a team that's actually won the World Cup. What are our thoughts about Japan? I love Japan. I love everything Japan does, and not just because of Hamari Sawa. No, I, it's a lot because of her. I think that they are strong contenders. I don't know if they have the infrastructure as such to be able to do it, but I'm not sure what it require building. I think that for me, this is a prediction. I think Japan, South Africa, and Australia will be the front runners here. Those are my my predictions. I would love to go to Japan. Like, I would love to go. And for this, it would be really exciting. I'm super intrigued by North Korea, South Korea, joint bid. I just don't want to see Dennis Rodman anywhere there. I just... I think that's fair. That's, that's you know, fair. I wake up every day and just hope that I'm not going to see Dennis Rodman anywhere. But I just, I just, the political scientist in me is like so interested in North and South Korea as a joint bid because we've seen, you know, in the Pyeongchang Olympics, we saw joint teams, we saw things happening, collaborations between the athletes reaching out. So for the betterment of women's football, if that's what it takes for them, I would be really interested. Like I would super go to North Korea. Like I would try my best to go. I'm feeling like I would get my visa rejected, but I'm just saying I would try. Do we think, obviously there's a lot to be skeptical about here and we're good at talking about that, but is it a good thing that there are this kind of record number of bidders? Like it seems, am I being naive and thinking like that's kind of a good sign? Like I'm excited about that. Am I being naive? Okay. <laughs> yeah. okay. Um, I'm gonna but, okay, let Brenda go first. Brenda. Okay. <laughs> no, I mean no. Yeah, it, because look, as soon as the country, no, I'm kidding. Not. As soon as the country, <laughs> kind of. I'm half kidding. I'm half kidding. Because as soon as the country's bid, what happened? And this is something to be excited about is that you can go in the local media of Bolivia, Argentina, Colombia, Brazil, and it immediately like prompts attention in and of itself. So I do, I do think that's cool. And I, I mean, look, like my heart would be full if it goes to South America. It's just, it's just one, I would also be very nervous just because they, of the terrible things that happen uh, just on a, on the daily there in women's football. So, you know, but yeah, I think, I think that in and of itself, Linz, I think does generate some positive coverage of the women's the women's teams in yeah, those places. Yeah, I, I agree with Brenda um, 100%, and I, I love this question, that my instinct is to be half glass full and to say, hey, well, it starts discussion. It can have Bolivian fans going, hey, we're bidding for the World Cup. Wait a minute, women play football? Like, So it can even be as basic as that. It can be as conversations starting up. And to be very honest with you, the 2015 Women's World Cup, I couldn't find a Louisiana Nassib jersey anywhere. 
I couldn't find one. So even the host country now, four years ago, didn't have readily available kits with their own national team players. So it's not like we're, we can look and say, well, France is so ahead of everyone. No, they're not. So where they are now is vastly different from where they were five years ago. So it is it's a process. And I did desperately try to look for Louisa Nassib jersey. I just simply couldn't find one. I went to Brazil and couldn't find a Marta jersey. So like there's, there's all these things I, I can't even name a Bolivian national player at the moment. So I need to work on that. But it also as someone who writes about it, I'm like, Oh, this is really interesting. I would really like to be able to have that opportunity to research, you know, and, and, and for those reasons, it could be interesting stories, but on the whole, like, I'm going to say it's positive that there's a lot of bid because that means there's more hustle and bustle and discussion about it. So, but Brenda, I'll throw to you for last word on this. Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how this all rolls out. I will be waiting. I think it's frustrating that it's another year before we have a decision. So ultimately, I'm super pissed off at that. We already know the 2026 hosts of the men's game. Unfortunately. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know, so I I feel deeply frustrated by that and I think that part of what your point Shireen about France evolving over the last years is a really really good one, but they need the time to do that. So by announcing it in March 2020, you're giving them 3 years instead of 5. And you know, for whatever country that is, it's it's going to be sort of shortchanging that process and and not having the development money come in over those years and things like that. But anyway, we'll stay focused on the summer for now, I guess, <laughs> and keep our eyes on what happens until April sixteenth, which is the deadline for the bidders really getting serious. Next, we have Brenda interviewing master powerlifter and anthropologist of sport, Dr. Melissa Forbes, who's preparing to compete in the IPF, International Powerlifting Federation World's Competition, in June. I'm so excited to be chatting today with Dr. Melissa Forbes. She is a cultural anthropologist, activist, and elite master's powerlifter currently a visiting scholar at the Center for Latin American and Caribbean Studies at New York University. Dr. Forbes has published on gender, indigenous rights, and the Zapatista movement, and state violence. Her writings have appeared in the U.S., in Mexico, and in Chile. Her decades-long community work spans issues such as sexual violence, immigrant rights, and prison abolition. But today, she's here to talk to us about powerlifting. And she's working on a new edited volume that I just want to throw out there for those of you who might be working on such topics. It's called Physically Feminist, Strength, Sports as Insurgent Practice that she is co-editing with Dr. Katie Rose Hedgemonic and Dr. Noelle Brigden. So those of you who are interested in contributing or following along, you can find Melissa Forbes at Lamalicia B. K-I-N on Instagram. We'll put it in the show notes. And on Twitter at MM underscore Forbes. That's a long introduction that is well-deserved. How are you, Melissa? I'm great. (laughs) It's great to be talking with you. (laughs) Well, thanks for coming on Burn It All Down. I wanted to start by just asking you how you came to powerlifting. 
So I, of course, know you, Brenda, through soccer. Soccer has been a passion of mine. I've played it since I was a little kid, played it at pretty high levels. And I'd always lifted weights for soccer. So I like to stay strong for soccer and was still playing pickup games with this left-wing football group and kept getting injured and also was lifting in a gym environment that was sort of mostly men and they were very hostile to women's presence. A friend said, why don't you come with me to this other gym? It's just all weightlifting. It's, you know, women and men and LGBT people and, you know, racially diverse. So I went there and started training and these power lifts. And they said to me like, you know, Hey, why don't you learn the correct form and do power lifting? I'm like, okay. And then a few months into it, they said, well, you know, most of us here compete and why don't you just compete? And at the time I was like, no, I'm not good enough. And you know, the attitude was no, you don't need to be good enough. It's really fun. Let's just do it. So I did my first meet in um, December, 2013 and just loved it, got really hooked. And mostly because the atmosphere of the other women who were competitors, everyone was cheering each other on. I mean, people who were going head to head were just cheering each other on, helping each other. And it seemed like such a different kind of competitive sports environment. Because I was ready to give up regular Mm -hmm. sort of league soccer because people still yelled at each other, even though we weren't winning anything. And this just seemed like a thing. It also um, coincided at a time for me, sort of a hard lifetime. And I found that, you know, being in the gym and focusing on strength and these lifts was actually a really nice kind of way to get away from work and life stress and just focus on me and strength. So that's sort of how I got hooked. (laughs) And since you've been hooked, have, have you noticed other, like the numbers of women increasing? Have you gotten more involved in the competitive aspect? It's fascinating to me. And I think I really got into it, even though I had been lifting weights since I was a teenager. um, I think I got into the sport right at a sort of the point of transformation because there were a lot of women lifting and I'm a master's lifter. So that's over 40 and there are different age um, groups after that when it really started to get popular. And I know part of it's from CrossFit getting popular and then people Mm. actually wanting to lift weights more competitively and seriously. Yeah, it just expanded from there. So the first national meet I went to after local meets was massive and it's just gotten bigger since then. My federation, which is USA Powerlifting, has grown to being somewhere between a a third and a half women um, of 22,000 members, which is small. It's a niche sport, but the number of women has really grown just incredibly across all like age and weight class divisions. And you're competing in New York City, right? So I actually compete internationally. I started locally and then did national meets. And in 2017, uh, 2016, I was an alter for the national team. 2017, I won the national championship. 2016, so I was on the world team and went to actually compete for the U.S. in Minsk, Belarus. And I, oh, wow. I won gold in the squat and silver overall. And then this year, I will be going as part of the U.S. national team to Sweden, to Helsingborg, Sweden, and competing again. So, Congratulations. And you also referee. What is the role of the referee compared to soccer? I mean, for those mm-hmm. of us who are coming in at, into you know, this conversation with more soccer knowledge, what is that like? So it's it's interesting because I, I think I have gotten kind of sucked into it. I became a club coach and I became a referee. And one of the things about being a referee, I think is really useful for lifters is 
you're giving back to the sport because it is a kind of a volunteer thing, but it really sharpens you as a lifter because you're looking for the lifters to do the right to, to do all of the commands that you give them. They have to do it correctly. They have to say on the squat where you have the bar on your back and you step back and you squat down below, just below parallel. So you're, you're making sure that the bench press, you know, touches the chest and then presses up and like the arms are locked out or in the deadlift, you know, you're locking out sort of knees and shoulders. So you're really, I think it's really different because you're looking at individual performance and you also have to look at the different, you know, biomechanics of all these different kinds of bodies. And I don't know, there's a, there's a, it's, it's a lot to look at. And it's also, I think like soccer, it's also very, very fast because Mm. Like you get one lifter after another and you're sitting there in a chair, like watching one thing after another. <laughs> so, but it does, I think knowing the rules um, definitely makes you a better lifter. And I think refereeing makes you a better lifter. So in the last couple of years, at least it's come to international attention, the role of transgendered athletes in powerlifting. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of what those conversations and tensions have been like? So I think this is all something that is really developing as we speak. So I can speak to it a little, which is that there has been a policy prohibiting transgender athletes from participating in the U.S. in drug-tested federations. So I'm part of a drug-tested federation because of the use of hormone replacement therapy and other, other things that lifters may take, but they may not. And I think a lot of trans athletes were competing at local levels, but... Recently, there was a case of a trans woman in Minnesota who who won and, and came out as trans and the federation sort of doubled down on the policy of uh, its policy of prohibiting trans lifters. And I think part of it is a confusion of whether being trans gives you a performative advantage. And obviously, there's the IOC guidelines, the NCAA guidelines, which allow trans athletes. And I think there's a lot of resistance to accepting those because of this idea of, you know, drug testing and not giving therapeutic use exemptions for testosterone for trans men, or in the case of trans women, it would actually be to reduce androgen. So it's it's a very interesting way these things get conflated. I personally think it's a lot of, you know, a lot of underlying both ignorance. I was talking to a friend about this and how suddenly when we talk about trans athletes, people who've only taken biology and, you know, in high school, like 20 years ago, are experts in the highest level biology around sports and hormones and other issues. And, you know, just sort of transphobia. So a lot of excuses that are actually trying to hide transphobia. For me, I, I think there's no reason why a policy can't be crafted that would allow trans athletes to compete because we don't see anything that points to performative advantage. I think it, exclusion makes no sense. And the other thing that actually, for me, as a, a woman in sports and soccer and also sort of elite powerlifting now, one of the things that is kind of very upsetting to me is the way that within the organizing around this. So there have been petitions, there may be a policy change proposed, at least in my federation, not in the other federations that are drug tested, but in mine this May, there will be some proposals to change this, that it's mostly been men who are the most outspoken for prohibiting trans women and wanting to do this in the name of saving women's sports for women 
which I just find ironic because I, you know, these are mostly people who could care less about women's sports. I mean, I'll just say that, Mm -hmm. but are suddenly now up in arms trying to save sports for us. And I mean, I mean, we're talking about also a very small number of trans women who would be competing. And I, you know, I'm quite open. Personally, I compete internationally and I'm open to competing against trans women in the circumstances, you know, following IOC guidelines or other guidelines. And it's sort of astounding that they, they want to save us. And we're saying, well, maybe let's, you know, see how this goes. And, you know, I have a list of, I have like a list of 30 (laughs) things they could do first. Like how about gender pay equity so that we can afford this? How about childcare at meets? How about more women in leadership position? I mean, I, yeah, (laughs) go watch, go watch a women's soccer game, go watch a women's basketball game. (laughs) Where are they proposing that trans women lift then? if they can't lift with women? They're proposing that they don't. And I think, or at least not in a drug tested federation, but in a non-drug tested federation, many of the people are using performance enhancing drugs. So for trans athletes who don't want to use those substances, it wouldn't be any kind of fair competition. And, you know, I I think these things are, are evolving, but I think mostly it's this idea that somehow being a trans athlete who does use hormone replacement therapy or, or other kinds of medications they, that they're doping. And this to me is the, the sort of part of the problem is rather than seeing it as within a, a medical condition that you can get a therapeutic use exemption like you can for the Olympics, it's a medically necessary you know, tool for your health and well-being, mental and physical, that they're seeing it as doping, which is cheating and hiding to gain advantage. And so trans athletes are, you know, being very open and honest about who they are. So I don't, I mean, there's really no, it makes no sense to me logically, but I think also this is the thing with women, you know, and other people of color, you know, other folks coming into powerlifting in greater numbers is that it's facing a culture that was sort of very traditionally sort of masculine and sort of confronting an entrenched culture that may not either understand in the best of cases or um, in the worst welcome that kind of diversity in the sport. And I do say may not understand because I think there are generally some people who are open but really don't you know, have the resources or tools to, to be able to understand what this is about. And then there are others who are just really not not interested in anyone other than men really taking up space. I will, will say that the reason I started lifting in my federation is because it did seem very open to all sorts of people. What do you think? Is there a generational shift that's happening? Is it is it more in the master's division that you see that entrenchment or? Well, that's interesting because so as a master's lifter <laughs> and along with a lot of other, you know, some other master's lifters I know is I don't think it's generational in terms of age as much as generational, maybe in terms of the sport. So like who's been in the sport for a very, very long time versus who is newer and coming into it. As well as, like I said, there's just, you know, some kind of underlying, what we find all across the world, it's sort of either transphobia or sexism or race. I mean, there are those kinds of attitudes that exist as well. So, but, but I think generationally in terms of the sport, like who's, who kind of started these federations, developed it and what their ideas of it are. And now that's all kind of breaking open because other people are seeing, especially I would say for a lot of women, women of color, 
strength sports as you know, facing the contemporary moment that we're in, in terms of a lot of repression and hostility and violence, that getting strong, and we see self-defense classes becoming more popular, you know, getting strong both physically and mentally, because I, I do think powerlifting, it makes you mentally strong. I mean, you can't, you know, I like when I have over two times my body weight on my back and I'm needing to squat down below parallel, it's a feat of mental strength for my mind to say like, you've got this, just do it. <laughs> so, I mean, I think those are, are things that people need really to confront the world we're in right now. Can you tell us a little bit about the upcoming competition in Sweden and how we can follow? Um, yeah. So it's the IPF, International Powerlifting Federation. It's classic worlds. And that means I don't use equipment other than sort of a belt and knee sleeves, not, not the big suits like people do. And if you go to the IPF, International Powerlifting site, they have a live stream. And USA Powerlifting will also have a live stream of Worlds. Um, and that's in June, June 4th to 15th. So I'm early on because they put the Masters early on, and then it's the Juniors and then the Open, which is not actually age limited, but anyone who qualifies as an Open lifter, like you're the top elite lifters, period, is in the Open. So yeah, that's how you could follow it. Is there a particular team that you usually feel like poses a big challenge? Um, the U.S. <laughs> so it's, I do. I think two years ago, Masters women, I, I think across the board, we won all of our Masters one to the different Masters division. The Masters women from the U.S. won the team trophies and the men have as well. And then with the Open, it's a little more mixed. I mean, the U.S. has some amazing lifters who win, but you know, people from, you know, Australia, Great Britain, Russia, the Scandinavian countries, there's South African lifters, Indian lifters. I mean, I think Canadian lifters, these Ecuadorian women who I've, I've seen, Brazilian women. I mean, there's, it's sort of, yeah, it really depends. It's interesting on the weight class, different matchups. I think that you'll, you'll see different things also with the men's and women's teams of who brings different people. But I, yeah, it's kind of, the U.S., at least in terms of master's women, does a pretty good job. I think with my, the nominations aren't out, but with my master's group this time, there's a Hungarian woman who's really strong and a Canadian woman who's really strong. So that's, <laughs> and maybe some others who I don't even know about. So yeah, it's it's actually kind of amazing to me because, so for me, in terms of being a master's lifter, because people often just think about these things in terms of, you know, younger people being strong. It's not necessarily that you can't get really strong when you're older, even if you start when you're older. I actually, two years ago, qualified to lift in the open. Even though I'm a Masters 2 lifter, I, I qualified to lift as an mm -hmm. open lifter. So wow. I think people can definitely... I've talked to some women when I've been refereeing, and they're watching their high school children. And I say to them like, oh, well, why don't you get into this? And they're like, I never could at my age. And I always say to them, but I'm your age. I'm like, come on. Um, and, and, you know, even just on a basic level of you don't have to compete, but when I've gotten bone density scans, my DEXA scans, my bone density is 2.1 times women my age and 1.3 times women in their twenties. So I'm a, pro I'm a proselytizer on that. Um, so well, well done, Melissa Forbes. I'd like to thank you for being on Burn It All Down and we'll be following you this summer at the world. Thank you so much. And I love you all and your podcast. And I always make my students listen to you. So <laughs> thank Aww. you so much for being there.
Thank you. Up next, we're going to have a little discussion about mental health in the NBA. Linz, can you take us through this, please? Yeah. Okay. So last month at the uh, Sloan Conference, uh, MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Analytics Conference, to be specific, because we like to be specific here, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver uh, had a conversation with Bill Simmons of The Ringer, formerly of ESPN. And in that conversation, Adam Silver said that what surprises him about NBA players these days is that when he meets with them, they're truly unhappy. He just said a lot of these men are generally unhappy. And he said it's not so much. He doesn't think it's so much just the pressure and, you know, the stress of their jobs, which seem cushy to a lot of us. And obviously, they're playing a game. But look, there's there's a lot of stress involved with it. And there's a lot of attention. And there's a big spotlight. And it would get to you. I It would get to me. But Adam Silver said... I think it's less calculated than a lot of people think. The reality is that most don't want to play together. There's enormous jealousy among our players. He also said, if you're around a team in this day and age, there are always headphones on. The players are isolated and they have their heads down. So I think that there's a lot of ways that we can take this conversation. There's really... Talking more about mental health is always a great thing to do. A lot of the WNBA players, Amani McGee Stafford, who we've had on this this very podcast, have led the way in discussing the fact that they have depression, they have anxiety, that there are mental illnesses in being a professional athlete, that these things are not mutually exclusive. And obviously in the NBA, Kevin Love has spoken up and he's been a real, really out front recently, Trey Young. I want to honor that discussion and I want you guys to weigh in on that part of it. But there's another part of me that kind of feels a little bit like millennial shaming, like, oh, these kids always on their devices, they're so unhappy type thing. And and I wonder, I have a hard time believing that phones and social media generally are leading to more instances of mental illness. I just think we're talking about mental health in general more than we were 20, 30 years ago. So that's kind of where I come down on that. Did you guys get the same impression about the conversation? and Or do you think that maybe Adam Silver is completely right? Bren? I work with that age group day in and day out. And I usually find when you start to classify younger generations as having X problem, you're immediately awful. Like, I don't want to be that person that says, oh, look, what the, what the youngsters, what's wrong with the, the kids are all right. But I do think that the intense social media presence in their lives is anxiety provoking and not just for them but for older people as well i do think it's isolating to a certain extent i do think it might inhibit i think it it gives you an out in a social situation and it allow it, it makes it difficult for you to 
integrate into a group that you don't know. So I could see that in a locker room. I certainly see it in a classroom. So, you know, where if if a student's a little bit nervous, they get to class early, maybe maybe 10 years ago, they would have struck up a conversation. And now it's like immediately revert to phone. I sort of feel like I'll be the defender of the mobile device in the sense of there was a lot of rhetoric and I'll tie this back into, you know, the NBA players and athletes, but people saying, well, go outside, you're avoiding nature. I'm one of those people that when I struggled very heavily with my own mental health, my phone is where I went for support because a lot of my friends were online. And if I was in a situation where I couldn't talk to somebody about it, that support was through my phone. I hadn't even met Lindsay until March 8th, before March 8th of this year. March 6th is the day Lindsay and I first cuddled. (laughs) And like, you think that's staggering. Like we've been through 90 plus shows, but I haven't met her. So through my phone is how I access friends. Like that's how it is. So maybe someone's support is on there. And I always get back, particularly with mental health, to the the idea of you don't know what someone else is going through. And this happened very specifically in August when there was a big piece, um, not in August, I believe it was before that. DeMar DeRozan, who was at the Raptors, talked about his mental health and everybody was like in a frenzy. And there was this really insightful piece. I think it was, I can't remember who wrote it. I think it was Jackie McMullen talked about the mental health issue. And in that DeRozan had said that money isn't everything. So the struggles you have coming with you before don't get evaporated or eviscerated because you have money now. And the response that he often gets is, well, you've got money, you shouldn't have problems. So, and remember what Biggie said, more money, more problems. So it's not that simple. It's really not that simple. And I, th- you see, and, and DeMar DeMarzen was very often on his headphones and on his phone. He was coming in and maybe he's getting support from somewhere. Maybe he was getting, you know, as he came into the um, Scotiabank Center, maybe he was getting support. We don't know. So it's easy for Adam Silver to sit there and opine about the kids are unhappy. Like Adam Silver doesn't know shit about shit. So I'm not going to defer to his comments on mental health of all things. I barely defer to his comments on basketball. So like, I just, I just, <laughs> love you. I, so like, I just, I don't feel like that's doing it. And it's in a way of us taking away that those opportunities. Yes, I agree social settings, but then we let the coach and the teammates build on that. Does it show in the, on the court? Do they look like they have chemistry on the court? Do they feel happy in that space? So if they want to be on their phones for a little bit, let them be on their phones. You know, like when it matters, do they do what needs to be done? Are they connecting with their teammates? Are they happy? Let's let's look at that. I don't know. Those are just some of my thoughts. Lynn? I think that there's two separate discussions here, right? Which is why <laughs> I had a problem with the conflating the two, really. I think we need to remove the stigma around mental health in society, and especially among men and particularly black men. I know it's a, you know, that the stigma increases, right? When you get into the marginalized communities, I've heard a lot of, you know, that's not me saying this, you know, I've uh, read the studies, but I think that what, I think that is such an important part of this, right? You don't want to shame people. You don't want to make it so, well, if you just weren't on your phone all day, you wouldn't be depressed. Or, well, if you just opened up, you know, if you just talked to this one person, you wouldn't be depressed. You don't want to make it seem like it's as simple as putting your phone down, right? That's Because it's not. That's not what mental health 
is. Now, if you're talking about team building and camaraderie, and, you know, of course, there can be some intersectionality here, but then, yeah, I can see how being on your phones all day, seeking all your validation from the kind of outside world and isolating yourself could be tough on that. And in that case, I'm all for teams and coaches in particular. Hello, coaches, you're the leaders, figuring out ways to step beyond that. I know that Coach Pop, the only part of the patriarchy that we like here, (laughs) burn it all down. Uh, My president, yeah. Yeah, he has team dinners where everyone's off their phone, right? Everyone's not allowed to be on their phone. There has to be some sort of team building and camaraderie. And I am all for coaches and for players pushing that forward. You want to be close to your teammates. It's important. Same time, this is a business. You don't know who to trust. (laughs) You know, it's so complicated. So I just want to say that my fear about comments about Adam Silver really tying mental health so closely to the millennial generation and social media devices is that it's not talking about the overall problem, which is, you know, uh, get therapy, Seek medication if that's something you're interested into. You know, finding people, finding ways to cope so that you can become a better person and taking away that stigma so that you can talk about it. And guess what? Sometimes when you're feeling anxiety, as Shireen said, or when you're feeling deep depression, the last thing you want and the last thing that's helpful is to be forced into social situations. You need that alone time. You need that solace. So I just, I just, I think my problem with this was the conflating of the two, and I felt like it kind of took the the conversation a step backwards. Bren, I agree. I also think one of the questions that you raised in the beginning, Lindsay, was about: Are we just talking more about mental health, or is this a becoming a particularly more pronounced? trend. And I I actually, I think both of those things might be true without conflating the two issues. I don't think that they may, that they're, I think they both may be happening. That doesn't mean that they're caused, right? That there's a causal relationship, like that the, that the social environment and the cell phone stuff is causing or, do you know what I'm saying? But I, but I think we might be seeing both. And I think that we should see it as a positive thing if we're having more discussions. And I, I, you know, frequently people will say that more and more at at universities, we're seeing needs of mental health services. And people, you do get occasionally people criticizing that. And it's really wrong. So I mean, I think you're right, it does contribute to kind of larger shaming that takes place. And it does take us backwards. So I I concur on all that. Now for our favorite segment of the show, the burn pile. Lindsay, what do you have to burn? I don't know if you all saw this this week, but in the first round of the NCAA tournament, Tom Izzo got incredibly bad at his freshman forward, Aaron Henry, and he shook his finger in Henry's face. His teammates had to actively restrain him. And even to the point where in the huddle, when Tom Izzo was sitting down, he got back up and went after Henry. 
There is one thing. I think coaches absolutely have the right to raise their voices at their players mid-game and get intense and, and all of that. But I feel like what Izzo was doing was just on another level. And it brought back all these conversations about bullying in sports and toxic masculinity and this, let's face it, unequal balance of power that exists when your coach is making millions of dollars and the players, and the coach happens to be a white man, and the players, young black men, are making absolutely nothing. The conversation around this was absolutely absurd. At first, people got mad, but then there was a backlash of players and analysts and coaches calling anyone who got mad about this soft, you know, maybe a snowflake, um, and saying this is just what coaching is. But I don't think that that's true. (laughs) I think that you could absolutely coach in intense situations without belittling and physically going after your players. And if you can't, then you're not a good coach. (laughs) You're a bully. And a good coach and a bully are not the same thing. This is my, maybe I'm, I'm soft. I get that. But guess what? That's okay. Maybe we all need to be a little bit more softer when sports come into play because this was just ridiculous. And I thought it was very interesting on a TNT panel about this. The two people who didn't like this were Candace Parker. And honestly, I'm forgetting the name of the other male player who was beside her, but that's okay because Candace Parker is most important. And they were saying, look, we had tough coaches. They never wagged a finger in our face. So I'd like to just I'm I'm actually just going to focus on this for the burn pile. Let's just throw finger wagging Tom Izzo and those who enable coaches who bully and demean their players onto the burn pile. Burn. Burn. I'm going to go next. And this week I'm actually going to burn Patrice Evra's homophobic comments um and just a content warning for anybody out there because this is you know pretty jarring yes this is the same patrice evra who was racially abused by luis suarez who everybody knows i cannot stand but you know when the world sort of rallied around patrice evra when he came forward with what luis suarez had said to him but what ends up happening here is that fast forward and patrice evra who was defending manchester and you know in a recent match against paris he basically used the F word and the homophobic slur and to go to Paris Saint-Germain fans. And, you know, the PSG club has spoken up about it and said it was unacceptable. And Paris, PSG had actually lost to Manchester. And, you know, it was just sort of like he said, it, it was a misunderstanding. So this was his reply. It was a misunderstanding. But in a strongly worded statement, PSG had said, Paris Saint-Germain condemns Patrice Evra's homophobic insults aimed at the club, its representative and former players in a video released yesterday. And these remarks have profoundly shocked the club, which is particularly committed to the values and respect and inclusiveness. And that's really, really, really important for them to do that. And this is also Patrice Evra, who, you know, was condescending in the way that he clapped while Enia Luco was commentating. Like he famously clapped for her after she said something really brilliant and brilliant and, you know, astute because that's what she is in her punditry. So I think it was really disappointing in that way for him to do that. And also his reaction and a lot of the reaction online from various clubs, including fair and like organizations was that his lack of accountability of what he said was very, very disappointing. So instead of saying, you know, I screwed up, I'd like to do better. He is like, no, it was a misunderstanding. I didn't mean it that way. Well, you know, this whole thing of 
I, it's not what I meant, or this doesn't reflect who I am. It actually reflects exactly who you are. So Patrice Evra, I'm metaphorically burning you because that was disgusting. Burn. Burn. Brenda? Keeping in on the disgusting track, this week, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro visited the White House. The far right and quite corrupt president, the one from Brazil, said in his remarks that Brazil and the U.S. are joined, quote, in their effort to ensure liberties and respect to traditional family lifestyles, respect to God, our creator, against the gender ideology or the politically correct attitudes and against fake news, end of quote. Bolsonaro has targeted LGBTQ community since coming into office and feels as though President Trump really is his ideological compatriot. And at that point, President Trump nods along to this sort of stuff. And and knowing that these are all code words, right? Politically correct is like, I can't say the racist shit I want to anymore. So there's translations for those types of things that are clear. And at that point, Trump's nodding along. And then Bolson, he gives Bolsonaro a U.S. men's national soccer jersey with his name on the back um, saying he was honored to present him. So Trump's got this national men's jersey, number 19, hands it to Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro then digs up his own Brazilian shirt and he says – to Trump, well, I, I'm giving you this as a reflection of number 10 worn by Pelé, the most talented soccer player ever. So to see Bolsonaro invoke an Afro, Afro-Brazilian player all the while that they've got, you know, the death of Marielle Franco, which has never been properly investigated while they've targeted uh, clearly black citizens in favelas is just stomach turning. So I want to burn the jersey, the shirt exchange of Trump and Bolsonaro. I want, I understand that soccer can't be removed from politics, but I'd love if these two politicians were removed (laughs) from soccer. So burn. Burn. And now it's time to amplify some amazing people in sport. I want to start the segment by recognizing and congratulating the NWHL champions for 2019, the Minnesota Whitecaps. They won 2-1 in overtime against the Buffalo Buttes. What an incredible game it was last week. Just want to congratulate the Whitecaps franchise, the players, the community, the family. It was an incredible win. Also want to shout out Haley Skimura of the Buffalo Buttes for being named the 2019 NWHL scoring champion. Jillian Dempsey of the Boston Pride for winning the 2019 Dana Lang Award. And Jonna Curtis of the Minnesota Whitecaps for being named the 2019 Newcomer of the Year. Congratulations to everybody. What an incredible NWHL season that was. It's been so thrilling. I also want to shout out the CWH Awards were last night. Today is the final of the Clarkson Cup being played by the Canadien of Montreal and the Calgary Inferno. So last night at the CWHL Awards, Rookie of the Year to Victoria Bach from Markham Thunder, Coach of the Year Jim Jackson, also Markham Thunder, Goaltender of the Year Alex Rigsby, Calgary Inferno, the Jainer Heffer Trophy went to Marie-Philippe Poulin of Le Canadien, 
my prime minister. And this is an incredible award because it's actually voted on by other players. So it's really, really beautiful. The CWHL MVP award also went to Marie-Philippe Poulain. And this is the third year that she has won both the Jaina Hefford and the CWHL MVP, 2016, 2017, and now 2018. So that was really, really incredible. Congratulations to all those phenomenal hockey players. And we can't wait to watch the Clarkson Cup final, which will be aired on Sportsnet. It'll be available on CWHL.com, and there's other ways to watch it. So our honorable mentions, first, bon courage to Anna Kessel, the first ever editor of the women's sport for The Telegraph in the UK. So Anna is seeking to amplify and cover women's sports with a team that includes track superstar Dina Asher-Smith, tennis matriarch Judy Murray, Arsenal footballer Jordan Nobbs, rugby star Maggie Alfonsi, sports journalist Vicky Hodges, and football reporter Katie Wyatt, as well as sports journalist Katie Rowan. So we're looking forward to their incredible coverage. I would like to say congratulations to Barcelona Femenini and Atleti Madrid Femenino for drawing a crowd of over 60,000 for what's widely known as the Women's El Clasico last weekend. Now, this is really fun. The Iterod happened earlier in the month. And just want to say congratulations to Two Rivers Musher. And for those that don't know, a musher is someone who drives a dog sled. She has Ali Zirkel has been racing near the front of the pack in this year's race. And she's completed the Iditarod 18 times. She finished second place three straight times and was followed by three consecutive top 10 finishes. She has the best race record amongst women competing in the Iditarod. So just wanted to shout that out. Also wanted to shout out the India Women's National Football Team for winning the South Asian Football Federation Women's Cup. They beat Nepal 3-1 in the final. The entire match is on YouTube if anyone wants to go see. Caitlin Ohashi, the UCLA gymnast who went viral with her Michael Jackson-inspired floor routine, completely changed her routine in the wake of the documentary about Jackson's sexual abuse leaving Neverland. She debuted the new routine at the Pac-12 Championship this weekend, and it included music from all female artists. Tina Turner, Beyonce, Janet Jackson, and of course, she scored a perfect 10. Also want to shout out the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, who have hired two full-time female assistant coaches, Moral Jada Diffar, an assistant strength and conditioning coach, and Lori Lacoste as assistant defensive line coach. We love seeing that. Yay for the Buccaneers. Now, may I get a drum roll, please? I was going to ask for it again because I'm like, on the bar, that was like a two, okay? It was real bad. That was bad, but that's okay. I would like to award this year's Badass Woman of the Week to Canadian and Mississauga native Bianca Andreescu for being the youngest winner of Indian Wells. She won last week in a stunning, stunning victory at actually promoting her to 24th in the world rankings. And we just found out again, she beat Angeline Kerber, I think yesterday to win again. And she's just absolutely shining. Her star is rising. We're so excited about this. So congratulations to Bianca Andreescu. Yay. Now, tell me what's good. Lindsay, tell me what's good. Okay, what's good for me right now is the new show on Hulu, Shrill. 
um, which is based off of the book by Lindy West and stars A.D. Bryant from SNL. And I have not gotten this much joy out of a show, perhaps ever, to the point where I'm literally four episodes in. I know there are only six episodes and I don't want to watch the last two because I don't want it to be over. So I'm saving them. I think everyone should watch this show. I think it's got universal themes that everyone can relate to about kind of finding your voice and fighting for yourself. But look, let me be honest, especially if you are uh, an overweight woman, I think this show will mean a lot to you. I have never seen anything like this on screen that I could relate to in this way. I wish that I'd seen something like this on screen when I was a teenager, But honestly, the 32-year-old me needs this just as badly. And I'm going to watch it. I already know I'm going to watch it multiple times. I've already cried multiple times. I've laughed multiple times. It is so smart. So, so good. And it's it just really, honestly, means a lot to me. I don't want to get too emotional. But yeah, everyone should go watch it. It's really made my life. That's beautiful, Lindsay. It's called Shrill, Brenda. What's good for me is that I'm prepping this week to go to the conference, which is of the International Association of Communication and Sport in Boise, Idaho. So I will be going to Boise on Friday. My keynote is on Saturday, but um, Dave Zirin will actually be speaking on Friday night. So I'm going to catch a little bit of that. I'm also excited to meet up with my friend Molly Yannity. She's a professor and will probably hang out there. I'm really excited. I've never been to Boise. I am going to eat a lot of French fries, which always excites me because I really like French fries. And I feel like I'm a a sort of a connoisseur of French fries. And that my training has been mostly from Prince Edward Island potatoes. I also have just been really excited because my little guy Mustafa won gold at his volleyball tournament yesterday. And I'm very, very proud of him and my other guy is going for gold today at a tournament called the Bogarski Cup the Bogarski Cup I'm also going to celebrate the new word I can say today the Buccaneers so I'm going to say that (laughs) and try to put that into my vocabulary just casually I don't know where I can insert Buccaneers but I'm going to try to do that so I'm trying to be super positive about that and happy and what's good I'm just generally excited about life it's spring and uh, yeah and I love that so I'm really excited I got some starter seeds already going in my sunroom and I'm really like looking I'm just desperately looking forward to summer I am looking outside at my backyard and it's the first time there has it I cannot see white (laughs) there is no snow and that is amazing and also my neighbor and one of my my best friends Seth Kramer from Ironbound Films um, made a movie about sports He's not. He's a documentarian, and it's called Heading Home, The Tale of Team Israel. Really fascinating, really interesting stuff about the baseball team who participated in the Baseball World Cup um, a couple years ago. And so I'm going to go and see that at Rhinebeck Films. It's called Upstate Films. So I'm, I'm psyched about that, and, and that's pretty like amazing to make a movie. It's hard, I think. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> spring, movies, Beautiful. gardening. Also, sorry, I forgot to mention, basketball! 
so much great March Madness. Okay. <laughs> no, you can totally do that because I was going to say I'm really excited for the Clarkson Cup. I couldn't go to the final today, but I'm definitely going to watch it live. And I'm so excited that it's being aired three different places. The NHL Network is also going to air it. I think I said that, but I just really want to reiterate that it's an exciting time. And guess what? Like major networks are doing stories about women's hockey that they've suddenly discovered. So I'm just excited about that. I love women's hockey and, you know. Just throw in another what's good. Why not? You know how I feel about rules. <laughs> um, I Yeah, there's a lot of soccer. Call My Ball is playing um, friendlies right now. And so the U.S.-Chile game is Tuesday. And I'm definitely into that. Brilliant. That's it this week for Burn It All Down. Although we are done for now... You can always burn all day and night with our fabulous array of merchandise, including mugs, pillows, keys, hoodies, bags. What better way to crush toxic patriarchy in sports and sports media by getting someone you love a pillow with our logo on it? So the Teespring address is uh, teespring.com slash store slash burn it all down. Burn it all down lives on SoundCloud, but now can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please subscribe and rate and let us know what we did well and how we can improve. You can find us on Facebook at Burn It All Down, on Twitter at Burn It All Down Pod, or on Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod. You can email at us, burnitalldownpod at gmail.com, and check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you will find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon. We would appreciate you subscribing, sharing, and rating our show, which helps us do the work we love to do and keep burning what needs to be burned and keeping us biad to the bone. On behalf of <laughs> Lindsay and Brenda, I'm Shireen. And as Brenda says, keep burning Everything but not burn out. Is that what you said? Burn, burn on, on but, but not, not out. out. That's a little bit more efficient. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> <laughs>